Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to turn to John chapter 6. I'm going to read from 41 to 58, and we'll be focused on 45 through 58 in the sermon, or 59 actually. John chapter 6 at 41. This is the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. They were saying, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God, he has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And the Jews began to argue with one another saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh And drinks my blood, abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we come to your word, that you would illumine our minds, that you would bless every one of our meditations. May they be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Be seated. So last Sunday, we focused on Jesus' explanation of the unbelief he saw before him in the Jews. And he said to them, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. That's what he said. In the face of unbelief, he says, well, no one will come to me unless I draw him. 
This he said to these Jews, these synagogue officials, who were grumbling about the fact that he said he was the bread that came down out of heaven. And so in our passage this morning, Jesus pushes them even further and hones in on their anger at Jesus calling himself that bread of heaven. In fact, he doubles down. He, he pounds home this truth with these grumblers. How many times does he say, my flesh and my blood? He begins, it is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Jesus here is quoting the Old Testament, so uh, let's look at the verse in context. This quote is likely from Isaiah 54. And remember, Isaiah 54 immediately follows that passage where Jesus is is described as the suffering servant, Isaiah 53. Very clear statements of prophecy of Jesus. And Isaiah 54 is a statement about, this statement is about how the people would be taught by God himself in the time when that suffering servant came. When the Messiah came, the people would be taught. And here's the section from which the quote comes. This is Isaiah 54 at verse 9. For this is like the days of Noah to me, when I swore that the waters of Noah would not flood the earth again. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, nor will I rebuke you. For the mountains may be removed and the hills shake, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you, and my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord who has compassion on you. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony, and your foundations I will lay in sapphires. Moreover, I will make your battlements of rubies and your gates of crystal and your entire wall of precious stones. All your sons will be taught of the Lord, and all the well-being of your sons will be great." In righteousness you will be established, you will be far from oppression, for you will not fear, and from terror, for it will not come near you. If anyone fiercely assails you, it will not be from me. Whoever assails you will fall because of you. Behold, I myself have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and brings out a weapon for its work, and I have created the destroyer to ruin. No weapon that is formed against you will prosper. And every tongue that accuses you in judgment, you will condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication is from me, declares the Lord. I mean, what, what glorious promises for those people waiting the coming of the Messiah. All of that is compacted in this quotation that Jesus extracts from the whole. Jesus is fulfilling the eternal covenant mentioned in that passage in Isaiah 54, he is fulfilling that eternal covenant to save his father's chosen people. He's doing the work. Here he is accomplishing that work in time. The very embodiment of the truth is before these Jews and their response is one of complaint, grumbling, whining. And yet not all there would would end their days grumbling. Some would be drawn. Those given to the Son in that eternal covenant are, are those, as the passage describes in Isaiah, 
from whom God's loving kindness will not be removed. Those given to the Son would come to the Son as the Son calls them to Himself are those against whom no weapon formed will prosper. They are those who ultimately, the passage says, will be vindicated by the Lord. Vindicated. After they have suffered terrible rejection by the world, God will vindicate their miserable existence. Jesus has compacted all that covenant keeping in that quote. He's telling the people that the time described in Isaiah has now come, that covenant keeping God will bring to himself all those who were in his mind even before the foundation of the world. In that one little quote. And that is precisely what Jesus says next. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Oh, those Jews standing there grumbling that day believed that they had been taught by the Father. That was their boast. They had God as their Father, but Jesus teaches them that if they had had God as their Father, then they would be taught by the Son. And they will not be taught by the Son. That's what we're seeing here. You know, this is, this is Mary and Joseph's little boy not going to listen to him. They'll grumble and complain about everything he teaches and thereby prove they do not have the Father. The Word of God incarnate is teaching them and being blind and deaf and reprobate, they can't and won't receive his words as anything but foolishness. No matter how good the teacher, right? no matter how impressive his credentials, in this case, eternal God, no matter how inspiring the subject matter, those not drawn by the Father will not hear the Son. To put it positively, though, this passage teaches this, those who learn from the Father will come to the Son. Those who hear the Father will come to the Son. Now, this is why we shouldn't get upset when people reject our appeals to them, when we evangelize, when we tell people about Jesus Christ. They will come if God has chosen them. They will be moved by the Spirit when the Word of God comes to them. Let, you know, let that encourage you to pray, to look for the Lord to work, and not fret when, when your actions are in, seem ineffective. You know, God will be God. Even if you're the best evangelist in the world, God will still be God and have mercy upon whom he will have mercy. Right? And have, and, and, um, obey, you know, we are to obey his commands to um, share the gospel, to share his word. But don't think that it depends on you. You cannot do the necessary heart surgery. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. Some will listen. Some will hear. Some will, will listen and, and they'll be taught by the Father. They will come to the Son. They will worship Christ as he deserves and they'll be given a new heart, a renewed mind. They will receive Christ even though it will cost them all their respectability in this world. It'll be that miracle of conversion once again and others just won't hear you at all because they won't have ears to hear. 
Jesus then says to these hard-hearted grumblers, not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. And we're like, that seems like it doesn't follow from what went before it. Um, Jesus goes, though, I mean, there's this connection. Jesus goes from talking of one sense to another sense. Jesus was talking about hearing the Father, and now he's talking about seeing the Father. I think it relates to what he was saying earlier this way. Many think they have the Father without having the Son. Many people like to have God generically, but are pretty disgusted by the idea of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. Jesus has told them that that kind of situation is impossible because the Father draws people to the Son and that those whom the Father teaches come to the Son. Why is this? Because the Son has a special relationship with his Father. I mean, special is like the most uh, weak word I could say. It is unique. The Son, unlike any other man, has seen the Father. He has seen the Father. He has been with the Father. In fact, He and the Father are one. They're one. Right? What the Father does is what the Son does. There's perfect unity because they are a unity. There is such tightness to the bond that those who say they have the Father and reject the Son, those who claim they have known, have seen the Father, while being blind to the Son, have no understanding of the unity between the Father and the Son. Jesus is not just interjecting an argument here about God's being in the middle of another argument. He, he is... He is pointing out the utter awkwardness of claiming to have the Father while rejecting the Son. He's pointing out the utter impossibility of the old deists' view. They wanted to worship a, phil a philosophy. They wanted to worship a, a philosophical construct, right? But utterly rejected Jesus Christ. Had to. Right? The deists hate this kind of passage that makes the unity between the Father and the Son so essential to the core of all religion. They hate it. Get this, only the Son, having been the one who has seen the Father, is able to manifest God to men. He's the only one who can do it. He's seen him. He can show us. So Jesus pounded this drum throughout his ministry. He preached this message continually to these Jews who presumed to have the Father while they rejected him. This is going to recur con continually through this book, right? How many today do the same thing? How many today think they know God but absolutely hate Jesus? Every false religion is this way. Every heretical sect is this way. Our unthinking American conservative civil religion is this way, right? Tucker Carlson hates Jesus. But we listen to him all the time because he itches our American civil religion itch. I don't know if he hates Jesus. I just assume he does. I don't know what his profession of faith is. I'll be honest about that. But there are so many like that. 
right? Everybody wants God, but they don't want Jesus telling them that they must take up their cross, die daily, obey him if they love him, right? Worship him. One must reject Jesus if he intends to call his own religious shots. To have Jesus is to not be able to call your own shots. Jesus divides the whole world. His sword cuts through humanity. On the one side are those who love what he says. On the other side are those who hate what he says. On the one side are those who are willing to pluck out their eyes if if it causes them to stumble because they love their Lord. On the other side are those who think that such directives are sickening. And what's wrong with my sodomy anyway? You may reject the sun for your pleasures, but know this, verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. In other words, he who believes that Jesus Christ is, has seen the Father and is from the Father, bringing with him the word of his covenant-keeping Father, they have eternal life. They alone have eternal life. They alone have been drawn by the Father to the Son. They do not grumble at what Jesus has said, but they, instead of grumbling, hang on Jesus' words and everything he says. They hate jokes about Jesus. They take him very seriously. They love him dearly. And then we get into this section here where Jesus goes at these, these Jews in an extraordinary way. He, he doubles down on what he said about being the bread of life. He states it again blankly and then, and then at the end just pulls out his fist. He says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. Which is somewhat insulting to them. This is the bread, speaking of himself, which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread. I. Right? He's making things explicit. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. All of that is a clear reiteration of what he said earlier to the crowds, earlier in chapter 6. He states it here, and uh, there is no way to read what he says with any confusion. I am the bread of life. The manna did not save, but even those who ate it died. I came from heaven, and one may eat this bread and not die. I'm better bread than manna. I am living bread from heaven. Eat this bread and you will live forever. He's just saying this about himself. This is me. I'm here. I'm in your midst. I'm the bread that came down from heaven. Me. Now, one point on all of that. Your bodies need food. Right? Some of us are hungry now. And our bodies are telling us, give me food. Your souls need a different food, but they need food. Your souls need food. As much as people like to think that what they eat with their mouths will make them righteous, it does not. The food that goes into your mouth, goes through your system, gets digested, 
stinks and is expelled from your body and you still die. The food your soul needs is what Jesus offers in himself. The soul starves without eating the living bread of Jesus Christ. There's only one kind of food that that feeds the soul. There's only one thing in this diet. There's only one thing, and that is the ingestion of Jesus Christ by faith. That's what it is. The ingestion of Jesus Christ by faith. And then this statement in verse 51. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Boom, right? I mean, for Jesus to say that at that point, he's been building up to this. You can just tell in his rhetoric that he's been saying, you know, the bread of life is this. And, and if you eat Moses and this, and I am the bread of life, I am the bread. Of, and, and you must eat my flesh. And he is going to shock these Jews. Jesus says that the bread he will give, notice those words, is his flesh. In the Greek, sarx. It means flesh. Body. Meat. It's the body. It's your muscles. It's your physical flesh. Jesus then explains with graphic intensity what he means in verses 52 to 58. And so this is Jesus just pounding deeper and deeper into this, going after these Jews and their unbelief, right? The Jews respond just as he, we might think they would, just as we would if we had been there. Just as we would if we had no understanding of what Jesus meant. So at verse 52, then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son and drink his blood. I mean, you can just see him getting intense with them. Unless you, unless you eat his flesh and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father. So he who eats me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven. Not as the fathers ate and died, he who eats this bread will live forever. I mean, he is, he is pounding those two things. He is, he is shocking them. They're Jews. They don't eat blood. They don't eat the flesh of men. Right? And here he is pounding home this message. I mean, these words of Jesus here have been cataclysmic in the Christian church through the ages. Uh, the persecution of the church during the first century, the first several centuries, um, came as a result of these, these verses. Right? Until Constantine came and, and um, did what he did. 
um, pagan, the pagan em- emperors, right? The Roman pagan emperors. It came to them in reading these words that the followers of Christ were cannibals. And they didn't want cannibals in their kingdom. Cannibals are a threat to people's lives. And so one of the reasons uh, that early ch- the, the early ch- Christian church was persecuted is they were thought to be cannibals. This from Workman's book, Persecution in the Early Church. Except ye eat my flesh and drink my blood, ye have no lives in yourselves, would sound more than strange to heathen ears. To Porphyry, a third century philosopher, um, a few generations before Constantine, by no means an unfair critic, it seemed, Uh, To him, this practice seemed trivial and absurd, surpassing all absurdity and trivial coarseness for a man to eat human flesh and drink the blood of his fellow tribesmen or relative and thereby win eternal life. Tell me, what greater coarseness could you introduce into life if you practice that habit? What crime will you start uh, more accused than this loathsome profligacy? What then does this saying mean? For even though it were meant to be taken in a mystical or allegorical sense, still the mere sound of the words grates inevitably on the soul and makes it revel against a loathsome saying, unsuitable and alien to the habits of a noble life. That's sort of the attitude that they had toward this practice that they thought Christians were practicing. Among the charges of atheism, right, the, the charges against the early Christians, and they were persecuted for three things, atheism, anarchy, and cannibalism. Atheism, because, why? Because they wouldn't worship the emperor as a god. So they thought they were atheists. Anarchy, because they said Jesus was Lord, and they wouldn't say the emperor is Lord, right? So they're anarchists. And then this third charge of cannibalism was the cause of many executions. So, so this passage during that early part of the church had great effects on the church, led to many deaths. Then, jumping forward to the time of the Reformation, this passage was at the center of the rise and fall of kingdoms and powers. The Roman church taught that this passage was about the Lord's table. That this was about coming to the Lord's table and eating the very body and drinking the very blood of Jesus. So they interpreted these words of Jesus here very woodenly. The reformers, though, said it was about faith. And that Christ's body that was given was given to man on the cross and received, ingested into man by faith not merely by claiming to eat the literal body and drink the literal blood of Jesus. So this was, I mean, the Lord's table was what the Reformation was all about, right? It, it was debated between Protestants and Roman Catholics and then all the, Rome, then the Reformers and the Zwinglians and, the, and the, the Lutherans fought amongst themselves and couldn't get on the same page, uh, unfortunately. Um, but... And, and you guys know Luther's view. Luther is, I mean, if, if the Roman church is transubstantiation, Luther got away from it about a hair's breadth in his consubstantiation view. And his consubstantiation view was, was Christ is present in the meal physically in with, under, around, and through the bread. 
physically present, though the elements don't transform into the very body and blood of Jesus. He's just there physically. But even Luther, remember what Luther did at the Marburg of Colloquy when when Luther and some other reformers got together to try to work out their view of the Lord's Supper and get at the same table. Luther took a knife, it said, and carved, this is my body, into the table. Which is a really obnoxious way to argue. This is my body. He, he fought for the physical presence of Jesus in the supper. Right? Even he said this passage is not about the Lord's table. Not at all. It's not about the Lord's table. Um, Luther took this interpretation and um, argues that it's speaking here of Christ's cross and not the Lord's Supper. Luther writes in a sermon, he said this, Faith is the eating which preserves and strengthens us. Such eating is nothing else than the true right faith of the heart which exists when you receive Christ with faith and know, acknowledge that he has shed his blood for you and this is your comfort and strength and cross and affliction because you believe it without any doubt of the heart. In such a way you eat Christ and digest him in you just as the Lord Christ says of this uh, in John 6.35, He that cometh to me shall never hunger. Here too you have the spiritual eating of the heart. For what a Christian receives with his mouth does not avail him for his Christianity. What someone eats doesn't do anything for your Christianity. But if the heart receives anything by faith, that helps. That actually helps. Though that one becomes a rich, full Christian so that everything pleases uh, through that one because a rich, full Christian so that everything pleases God that he does. In another place, Luther preached this. He said, so then, there begins a murmuring, and they ask, how can we eat thy flesh? But this is the explanation, namely, that he speaks of the spiritual flesh that is of spiritual eating. It is faith that eats him. It is faith that eats him, just as he himself explains this when he says, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. That is, such a one eats rightly, for I am the bread of life. Faith is the one that eats. It eats and so believes in Christ. So then when we hear that Christ is the food and the bread of heaven, it is necessary that we cling to this truth in faith and hold on to it with appreciation and joy. Calvin argues similarly, as we would expect. In his commentary on John, he says it plainly appears that the whole of this passage is improperly explained as applied to the Lord's Supper. For if it were true that all who present themselves at the holy table of the Lord are made partakers of his flesh and blood, all will in like manner obtain life. But we know that there are many who partake of it to their condemnation. And indeed, it would have been foolish and unreasonable to discourse about the Lord's Supper before he had instituted it. <laughs> That's a great argument. You hear what he's saying? It's like, why would he be talking about the Lord's Supper? He hadn't even instituted it yet. He hadn't even done anything to institute that. Well, 
Um, Calvin goes on, he says, it is certain then that he now speaks of the perpetual and ordinary manner of eating the flesh of Christ, which is done by faith alone. So, we're to understand these words not as pertaining to the Lord's Supper, but as pertaining to faith. In other words, the nourishment we, we need from Christ is not by a physical eating of flesh, but by an ingestion of all that he is, all that he has done, all that he is doing by believing in him, by faith. Nowhere is the word flesh associated with the Lord's Supper in the writings of Scripture. It's just not. They, they're not held together. It is, though, associated with what? The word flesh is associated with Christ's incarnation, right? And the incarnation is his, him being embodied so that he could work out your salvation, right? And so that helps us understand the section as being about Christ's redemption on the cross and not some sacramental thing. There's one exegetical argument I'll add on to this, I'll make to back up what I'm saying. Look at verse 63. In that verse, Jesus makes it clear that he is not talking about a physical eating. He says, it is the spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. Right in this same discourse, he says, the flesh profits nothing the words that I've spoken with you are spirits and are life. Now, did you hear that? The flesh profits nothing. In other words, your flesh and the actions it takes amount to nothing. It is the inward work of the spirit, not the outward action of your bodies that gives us life. If it were eating that made us righteous, there would be no need for faith. We'd just eat. Luther explains verse 63 with these words. He says, with these words, Christ means to say that the bodily eating of the flesh does not profit, but to believe that this flesh is God's Son who came from heaven for my sake and has shed his blood for me, that is profitable and that is life. For this reason, to eat the flesh of the Son of God and to drink his blood means, as already said, nothing else than that I believe that his flesh was given for me and his blood was shed for me and that he overcame sin, death, the devil, hell, and all other evil for me. Kistemacher paraphrases the ver that verse this way. Stop thinking that I was asking you literally to eat my body or literally to drink my blood. It is my spirit, my person, in the act of giving my body to be broken and my blood to be shed that bestows and sustains life, even everlasting life. So, trying to bring this home, Jesus in our passage is speaking of the deep ingestion of Christ by faith and the closest analogy that he can make is that of, of eating. His body as a placeholder for all his work as the Son of God in redeeming mankind and establishing eternal life is to be discerned deeply. It is to be assimilated inwardly by faith, much like eating, right, takes an external object and, and um, 
brings it into us and makes it part of us and nourishes us. And so faith, in regards to Christ being ingested, faith is the eating. Faith is the eating that we're talking about here. Faith, eating is not the eating that Jesus is talking about. Faith is the eating. If eating something physically were in mind, Jesus would not have concluded by telling them that their flesh, by which he means their outward actions, profits nothing. They must believe in their hearts that he is the bread. But being human and not liking God's rule and his rules, we prefer outward actions to inward faith. Don't we? We just want some proof. And outward actions are things that we can do and, you know, notch, notch our belts. We'd like to determine what will save us, and it is usually little tiny things like tithing our mint and dill and cumin. All of us can easily think it is something we do or some self-made characteristic that makes something of us. But hear this, your creator has taught differently. He's taught differently. He has taught you to cease striving to know him. And the way to know him is to know his son who walked on this earth as a man and to believe he is the bread of heaven, that he came down from heaven, that he is the one, he is God, and he is the one who gives eternal life. We are saved by faith and all of us lazy dogs who think too highly of ourselves and our works should be relieved and humbled by that truth. Saved by faith. You don't have to climb Mount Kilimanjaro without shoes on to be saved by Jesus. You just have to ingest him by faith to believe that he is and he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Scripture says a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. So hear what the Jewish, what Jesus said to the Jewish leaders on that day in Capernaum. He offered himself to them. He offered himself to them as the bread of heaven. He told them that those who came to him would be drawn by his father he explained to them that, uh, they, that he was better bread than the bread of Moses because that they ate and they died. He is bread from heaven. He told them to so deeply take him into their hearts that he used the language of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. He would then offer up his flesh on the cross, right, so that their redemption would actually be accomplished. His body was broken, his blood was spilled, and salvation had come. And so now, now we are called to love that Jesus with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. To continue eating that bread of life by faith, right? 
availing of ourselves of all the blessings, all the means of grace, all the good things that he's given to us and continue feasting our souls upon him. And so may he grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Christ may live in you. Christ may dwell in your hearts. Christ may be one with you. Christ may be united. You may be united to him and he with you by faith. By faith. Those who think that, that going and eating something, eating the Lord's table that somehow transforms into the body and blood of Christ are sorely mistaken, right? Because that's not a meal that nourishes. In fact, without faith, it's a meal that kills. It does the opposite of what they do. It pushes them farther away from God. It sets God's anger upon them when they come to that meal without faith. But to think that, you can, that it's just physically like in the Roman Catholic view, physically to eat that bread and drink the wine because it's become the body and the blood is nowhere taught in Scripture. It's not taught in this passage. It's not taught anywhere. To physically do something would be to me, uh, would be to mean that salvation is not by faith but by works. And that's what sacramentalism does. It sells you a false gospel and tells you to work and to eat physical things and you'll have grace infused to you and it doesn't matter what you believe about Jesus, just get there on Easter and Christmas. It's blasphemy, it's wrong, it will lead souls to hell. You must believe in Jesus. You must eat more deeply than just eating. You must eat by faith. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we know you because we have tasted and seen that you are good. You have worked in our hearts. You have given us faith as a gift. Lord, and, and I pray that as we struggle against our flesh, which wages war against the Spirit, that this, the flesh would, would be silent and not tell us that we're saved by our works. You would not lie to us and say you have to do tangible things as if faith isn't tangible. Father, I pray that you would, you would deepen our faith in those who don't believe. I pray that you would even now convert them, that you would regenerate them and give them the gift of faith, that they would believe, that they would begin to feast upon Jesus Christ, that they would, they would consider this him even the first meal that they've ever had that satisfied them. Father, we pray that you would, you, would, you would continue to work in us, continue to sanctify us. Father, do not forsake us, do not leave us. We know that you won't because you have said you won't. You do not lie. Father, we thank you for being our Father. We thank you for drawing us to yourself. We thank you for the work of the Son that made, made you be just and the justifier. Oh God, we praise you. We thank you for salvation. 
thank you for the hope of heaven. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins. We thank you for the resurrection of the body. We thank you for life everlasting. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.